earliest followers of Jesus practiced. So they practiced a big togetherness in the temple courts. 3,000 or 5,000 people, uh, those are some of the numbers that are thrown out in the early, in the book of Acts, would meet in the temple courts. But also, then they would practice a small togetherness where they would meet in people's houses. They'd, go, they'd meet house to house and break bread with one another and pray and those kind of things as well. So they were doing this, a small togetherness with one another. The word one another is two words in English, obviously. But the original Greek word that's used, translated to one another, is just one word. And it's the word alelon. Say it with me. Alelon. Alelon. It sounds like all alone, but it actually means the opposite to all alone. It means one another. It talks about what we do together. It's used a hundred times in the New Testament. Approximately 60 of those times, it occurs in specific commands that are teaching us how to live together and also how not to live together. They're both in there. So I want to just look at some of those. A third of those statements where they use alelon, or one another, are commands dealing with the unity in the church or unity in the followers of Jesus. Let me read you some. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble amongst one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Can I get some water? I'm noticing I'm running out of juice in my mouth here. <laughs> if anyone, you know... I'll take any kind. All right. As long as it's H2O. Accept one another. Wait for one another before participating in communion. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another, which is pretty descriptive language. Bite, devour, consume. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. Oh, Give water to one another. Oh, that's not in here, but thank you. Now that's good. This break was brought to you by Real Canadian Natural Spring Water. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sin to one another. So that's all about unity. But then there's another one-third of these commands that are about love, instructing Christians to love one another. Now, this is no surprise because Jesus in John 13, 35 said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? So love one another, that phrase alone shows up over 10 times in the New Testament as a command. And then other versions of it, through love, serve one another, tolerate one another in love, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, the kissing is cultural. Just want to say that in case you think, oh, I'll go give my pastor a kiss. No, unless you're my wife or daughter, I'll take a handshake or maybe a fist bump of love, but not a kiss of love. Not interested, okay? Just letting you know. Um, But love is a big deal. Be devoted to one another in love. Another one that gets quite a bit of of, uh, 
of the, these one another commands is humility. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Don't be arrogant. Be of the same mind. Submit to one another. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another. And then there's a smattering at the end. I'll share a few more. Do not judge one another. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Do not lie to one another. Comfort one another, especially regarding the resurrection. Don't slander one another. Encourage and build up one another. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Now this isn't all the commands of the New Testament, but it's a really great foundation and a start for how God wanted his people uh, to operate together and to live together. So Sunday mornings is where we celebrate big, and it's great, and it's essential. But I would say you can't do all of these one another's on Sunday morning in a big crowd. Or it's unlikely that you'll be able to do those ones. You probably can't do these one another's unless you're connecting in smaller settings where you can develop deeper relationships with each other. So here's the bottom line. You can't do all of what God requires of you without being in relationship with other Christians. And you can't experience all of what God desires for you without being in deeper relationships with other Christians. So that's why here at Hillcrest we believe in connecting small. We celebrate big and we connect small. Now, 95 of you have finished your uh, next steps, discover your next step assessment or reflection or whatever, or tool, and, uh, and handed them in or, or did them online so it automatically went in. That's pretty exciting for us. 95. We're at a, a lower number next week. Maybe next week we'll be over 100 because uh, this, is, this is what we're doing here at Hillcrest is we're, we're discovering the next step of obedience and that the next step of growth on our, our journey of being Jesus' disciples, of following him. So you can do it online. You can go to hillcrestmj.com and hit the next steps tab, and then you can fill it out online. Or we have yellow sheets available for you if you want to do the paper version. With the paper version, though, when you fill it out, just turn it into the office, and, uh, and then we'll support you in your next steps. But of the 95 people who finished this reflection... Many have indicated that there's at least one next step that they should be taking in the, area of a, in the area of connecting small. So let me just share some of those results. 24 of you said, I need to connect regularly with someone at Hillcrest for encouragement and accountability as I pursue maturity in Christ. Wow, that's great. 24 people said that. 21 people said, I need to offer myself as a mentor to those younger or newer to the faith than me for the purpose of their discipleship. Hey, there's a great connection between those two groups already. Um, four people said, I need to join a pure desire group for support with sexual purity. That's awesome. 19 people said, I need to join a Hillcrest discipleship group, like a life group for adults or a student ministries group or young adults group or a mom's group or a Bible study group. 25 people said, I am in a group already, but I need to be more intentional about sharing, supporting others, or asking for support myself. And five people said, it's time for me to step up to host or lead a group. Oh, it's awesome. There's so many steps people are taking. Steps of discipleship, steps of obedience, steps to facilitate spiritual growth in their lives. One of the main ways we connect small 
here at Hillcrest is in groups. And we have a statement about groups at Hillcrest, and hopefully get that slide up here. There we go. Hillcrest groups are disciple-making groups where someone cares about and supports your spiritual growth. So that's our statement. But we've, we've also identified, what does it take to be a disciple-making group? What are the essentials? We've, we've gotten seven. Seven things that we think really uh, are essential for a group to be effective and active in making disciples. And I want to just walk you through those this morning. If groups are going to make disciples of Jesus who obey everything he's commanded, these things are essential. Number one, we use the Bible to inform our discussion. You know, whenever people come together, they always bring their opinions with them. And opinions are neat. There's nothing wrong with opinions. But as long as you're just dealing with opinions, it's pretty easy to dodge the changes you might need to make in your life. Because if someone says, well, I think you should do this, you can say, well, that's your opinion. But you don't feel any sense that you have to do that. But using the Bible to inform our discussion brings a new element into our discussions. And that element is the authority of God. That's why we ask our life groups to take the time to draw out of the Bible texts that they're reading the simple, straightforward things it says about God and about people. Your opinion might be more complex than the simple statement you might read in the Bible. But your opinion is not more authoritative than that simple statement is. Our goal is not just to banter back and forth our ideas, but to be transformed by the truth of God. I love what Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 says. It really talks about God's word or God's truth being the active ingredient when we come together. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I bet if you went to school, and I assume you all did, but if you went to school, you at one point were taught to do book reviews. You know, I like this book because of these reasons, or I didn't like this book because of these reasons. Um, But the Bible is the book that reviews you. It will uncover things in you. And maybe there are things you'd rather remain hidden. And you will give an, the, the things that it uncovers, those are the things you'll give an account for. You know, you won't give an account. At, God's not going to ask you for a book review when you get to heaven. What did you think of the Bible? Well, I like some parts and then like some other parts. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not how it's going to work. You're going, you're going to give an account of not what you thought of the Bible, but what you did with the truth you found in the Bible. That's what we'll give an account of. So we don't just want to form groups because we want to form groups. We want to be transformed in the groups that we form. And so we're really intentional, but that the Word of God is needed at the heart of all of that. The Word of God really does the work. The Word of God and the Spirit of God working together uh, we think it's an incredible combination. We've just seen time and time again where excuses fall away. Also, just truth comes to light that empowers you in such incredible ways when we just really discover, what does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about us in relationship to God? And so, 
We use the Bible to inform our discussion. Number two, we share our lives and care for each other. Now, I've already talked a lot about that. That's where that love and unity and humility that the one another commands talk about. But the early Christians were devoted to fellowship. They weren't doing everything as, as loners. They were devoted to fellowship. So we share our lives and we care for each other. Number three, we support each other in our next steps on Hillcrest Discipleship Pathway. Remember the statement at the beginning of this value of connecting small is that a disciple-making group is where someone cares about and supports your spiritual growth. So 95 people have figured out at least one next step of discipleship in the five categories of celebrating big, and connecting small, walking with Jesus, sharing the work, and engaging in mission. That's our, that's our five. You can see that little man, or as the tech team told me, they thought it was a spider last week, but I, I think it's a little man. Anyhow, but it's just... So, so many of you have already figured out what your next step is. You've done the assessment or the reflection, and you've come out that way. But some of you, you didn't quite get finished. In fact, my wife and I were like that. We were, that first week, we were doing the reflection, but then it was sort of like we weren't together it when we did it, and I thought, we got a family of four kids, and we're busy, and if we're going to take some next steps, we gotta, we got to coordinate to make sure we can actually pull those things off, uh, whether that's committing to things we're a part of and stuff. So we sat down and we did it. So it took us a week. So we're part of the 95 now. So I bet there's some of you, you started, but you didn't finish. I really want to encourage you to finish that reflection. Again, pray before you do it. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in it. Because we really just tried to, it's really just a helpful tool to help you figure out, Jesus, how are you leading me? into growing spiritually. What's the next step of obedience that you've got for me in my life? And you might go through and tick a lot of boxes, but then at the end, stop again, because we're not asking you to take on 10 new challenges at once. Maybe one or two next steps that you go after. Because sometimes we we try to, I'm going to do these 10 new things, and we don't do any of them, and then we're so discouraged. Do that one next step of obedience that's most urgent and most pressing, and the Holy Spirit tells you, you get a sense that, I'm really supposed to chase this one. And get in relationship with people who can support you. And so that's what our life groups are, are, are about, and, and many of these disciple-making groups in our churches are about, is supporting you to take that next step. So I think it'd be awesome uh, as we go forward. We know that more people are going to assess or, or reflect on what that next step is. We know that more people are committing to take that next step that's already happening. And then the thing that we really want is people to succeed. To succeed in things that maybe they've they've not succeeded in before. But they actually take those things. So when you're in your group, when you're in a disciple-making group, ask each other, what what, what next step are you taking of obedience in this season? And uh, maybe people just need help to even sort that out. That's what a group can do, support people in actually discovering what the next step should be. And then helping them to succeed. We really want you to win as a follower of Jesus. We really want you to grow. We really want there to be a spiritual potency in your life as you're obeying his leadership in your life and his commands for your life. Number four, we pray together and for one another. The early Christians were devoted to prayer. So in response to prayer, God will bring his presence and power into your group. We all have resources and wisdom to share with one another. So when you're in a group, that happens, right? So you go, hey, you need to borrow a whatever, hedge trimmer. I've got a hedge trimmer, whatever. And, or you've got you know, this problem, and I've got some experience and some advice that might help you. 
That's great. That happens in a group, and that's really good. But let's not forget that God has wisdom and resources to share with us. And those are deposited in our lives when we ask for them, when we pray, when we invite him into our group, we ask him in our group, we listen together expectantly in faith in our groups, and we just say, God, we want heavenly wisdom. We want heavenly resources. We want to, no, we, we want you to empower us in this, in this walk with you. So we pray together and for one another. Number five, we pursue maturity in Christ by making disciples who make disciples. Jesus, uh, disciples, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is basically where you can find it, or commanded uh, to make other disciples. So the disciples were to make other disciples, teaching them to obey everything Jesus had commanded them. So how does that happen? I think sometimes we imagine, and this can happen, that there's somebody who's 20 years older than me and much wiser, and they've sort of advanced in all the ways I hope to advance and grown in all the ways I hope to grow, and they'll mentor me one-on-one, and and I'll grow, and they'll disciple me. That's one way discipleship can happen. But we don't want to neglect realizing that it can happen peer-to-peer as well. We can disciple each other. How does that work? Well, basically, you get into a group where everybody's committed to, we want to obey Jesus. We want to grow. That's an, that's an amazing growth environment. Because your efforts to obey Jesus spark my own. And my efforts to obey Jesus spark yours. Because when you're in a community of, of people growing and trying to obey Christ and trying to grow together, it's a powerful environment because I learn, I I get tips from what you're doing, I get inspired from what you're doing, I get motivated, all sorts of things happen in that group. But it's like discipleship happens, can happen peer to peer. And it's not just uh, top down from someone who's way ahead of you. In fact, older Christians who might be way ahead of someone who's younger will often be inspired by the, the spiritual potency that's in the life of a new believer. If you've only been following Jesus for like less than a year, there's just probably, I bet, there's some level of spiritual potency in your life because you're probably chasing the next step of growth. That's inspiring to people. That's motivating to people. So you, it's really great. You can have people in a, in a group and some have been walking with Jesus for 40 years and some have been walking for, with Jesus for four days and everything in between. And as long as you're pressing into obey and take a next step of growth, even though they're very different steps, it's inspiring and it's, it's a, it's a, it's, there's potency there. So, um, the other thing is, when we focus on um, taking what we've learned together and sharing it with others, that means the spiritual potency doesn't just stay in the group. It begins to spread to others as well. And that's something we're learning together as a church. Number six, we identify upcoming leaders from within the group and give them opportunities to lead so that we can multiply groups. Uh, We're using a discovery Bible study model, and it's about discovering simple and powerful truths about God and people and responding by sharing that with others and obeying it ourselves. So to sum it up, discover, share, obey. If you don't remember anything else I say today, that might help you. Discover, share, obey. That's what we're doing. Coming to discover. What's in the Bible? What does it say about God? What does it say about people? Share. Who do I need to, who, can, who could I share this with? Who do I need to share this with? How can I do that? And obey. How do I obey what I've read? That's 
the beginning of spiritual potency. It's, it might be simpler than the kind of Bible study methods you've used before, but it is more challenging. And the reason it's more challenging because it's designed to reproduce disciples by developing our discipleship muscles in these three areas. Discover, share, obey. There are, I would say there are Christians who don't have the confidence currently to discover what the Bible says for themselves. And so they've become dependent on other people to teach them that or to download that for them. And teaching's great. It's, it's a gift of God. But you, I really believe that we want to enable as many people as possible to discover what's in the Word. We want to enable them to be able to share that. That's another growth curve. Who do I share this with? How do I, how do I initiate spiritual conversations? For some of you, that you know, you're going to start with even having a spiritual conversation with your spouse or with your kids or with, with your friend who is already a Christian. But how do, I, how do I even do that? That's something that you take baby steps in and grow in. And if you're in a group that's all growing together like that, you grow in those things. And then to have spiritual conversations as well with people who aren't believers. That's what we're looking for. We discover, share, and obey. We're developing our discipleship muscles. Our family is currently using uh, the Waha app. Waha. There's another fun word. W-A-H-A. And it's basically a discovery Bible study, but it's, it's really handy to use, and it's, it's super simple. And we're using it because it really works well for giving everybody in the group a chance to lead. So our group, our family group, uh, goes down as young to a f- my four-year-old daughter up to myself. I'm the oldest, right? So we say, when we're done, we say, well, who's going to lead next week? And uh, we just, uh, a couple days ago, it was my daughter's turn to lead. She's four. And so her leading the group was pressing the play button, and then, pre- and then the guy on the thing will say a question, and then she'd press the pause button. And then we'd discuss and answer the question. And, okay, Jade, we, we did it. And then play, pause, play, pause. So that was her leading. And you say, well, that's, you know, that's, that's cute. But she actually is facilitating the group because she's, you know, man in the, playing the pause button. Now, I've got greater hopes than that she'll do just that. But as a family, as we embrace, discover, share, and obey, and we're a family of obedience, we're a family of of who can we disciple, and we're a family of what does the Bible say, my dream is that she will walk in these things with effortlessly in the years to come. In fact, I I imagine just recently, I just thought, what would it be like when she's 12? I would love it if when she's 12 that she could lead a discovery Bible study naturally. Just it would be second nature to her. And she could lead it in such a way that the people she's leading in her group would come to see how easy it is to lead so that they would all have the confidence to believe that they could also lead discovery Bible studies in such a way that the people in those groups would have the confidence to believe that they themselves could lead discovery Bible studies. I'd love it if my 12-year-old daughter is walking effortlessly in the things that I'm taking a little bit of pains to learn right now. Wouldn't that be great if the next generation could walk in things at age 12 that we don't walk in until, well, I'm 49? I think we're, the decisions we make now are really important. The decisions we make now, the things we embrace as a church now are really important because it, it will uh, maximize the effectiveness of the next generation. 
I think a great example of this in, in, in the scripture is 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, And the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will, who will also be qualified to teach others. So, let me just break it down. Paul's disciple-making group was Timothy and some others he calls the many witnesses. Do we got that? So Paul is discipling Timothy and the many witnesses. And I assume that Timothy and several, if not all, probably all, of the many witnesses started disciple-making groups, just like the one they'd been in with Paul. And, the, and Paul calls these one the reliable people. So there's Paul, there's the many, Timothy and the many witnesses, then there's the reliable people. Now, if Timothy and the many witnesses did what they were told to do, then he trained those reliable people to lead well enough that they'd be qualified to teach others. So, let me break it down. Paul, that's one man. How many are Timothy and the many witnesses? Well, Jesus had 12 disciples. Let's downgrade it for Paul. Let's say he had 10. Okay? Let's say it's 10 people, just, just for fun. Okay, so Timothy and many pe- pe- witnesses are 10 people. How many are the next generation, the reliable people? Well, let's just say Timothy and the many witnesses, the 10, all do what they saw done, and they all disciple 10. Well, now you've got 100 people. Well, what, how many are the others, the last group that is described in this little verse? Well, if you've got 100 reliable people and they're all taking 10 because they saw how it was done and it was very reproducible and they knew how to do it and they were trained well, well then it's 1,000. Now, you think this kind of exponential growth, wow, that's, that's generations upon, that's 80 years, 100 years in the making, but not necessarily. If we are identifying early in the process, we're saying, here's a reproducible model, but we are inviting you to take turns leading so that you get confidence that you can do this with others. This could have all happened in Paul's lifetime. And maybe it did. Christianity exploded across the empire. It didn't explode across the empire because Paul was trying to get a thousand people to be directly dependent on him. No, he was saying, I'm going to work with Timothy and the many witnesses in Ephesus probably, and then I'm moving on to another town to start up another group. But I'm asking Timothy and the many witnesses not just to sort of sit and stew as a group, but Start their own groups and train more people and train them in such a way that they can train more people. And so when we come back to this this value, we identify upcoming leaders within the group and give them opportunities to lead so that we can multiply groups. So it's a shift that we're making, we're we're leaning into. It's important that we strive to make how we lead reproducible. We want to hold up the expectation that we obey and teach others to obey in a way that they can quickly turn around and teach others to obey. Just imagine playing a part in, tra- in truth transforming yourself and others that will lead to truth transforming others, that will lead to truth transforming others, that will lead to truth transforming others. Disciples making disciples, leaders making leaders. And here's our seventh one. Group leaders are empowered by and accountable to Hillcrest. So we want to support groups by supporting their leaders. We're we're shifting some things, and that that requires support. And so we've already got great leadership in place. 
Pastor Dave Moore is doing an amazing job. And in the days to come, Pastor Dave Wicks will start sliding in there to help even more. And um, I'm jumping in as much as I can because I'm really, 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 really excited what's happening in groups. I think it's the secret sauce to where we're going as a church and where we're going to build the kingdom is that discipleship happens in these groups. So how can we work together to see a great harvest come in? So I invite you to join a disciple-making group because I think it's the best support that we can offer you to succeed in taking your next step as a disciple of Jesus. You know, every group in our church is doing some or maybe many of these seven essentials, but there are some groups already that are saying, we're, we're doing all seven of these, we're committed to doing all seven. I'll just give you a quick list. Um, I think you'll see a slide up there in a, in a moment or two, but um, life groups for adults, all of our life groups are endeavoring to have these seven elements in their groups so that our groups are disciple-making groups. Um, young adults group, they meet on Mondays, I think. Is that right? Yeah, on Mondays. They are also endeavoring to have all these seven elements in their group. Our junior high and senior high ministries have embraced this. So if you go to youth uh, student ministries, either junior high or senior high, you'll experience this in your group dynamic. Mom's time out is embraced these things. When, our Wednesday ladies Bible study, which happens here, is, uh, is embraced these things. And I'm sure there'll be more groups yet to come. They'll say, okay, I think we can do those seven elements and we want to be making disciples who make disciples. So your best chance to succeed in your next step in your discipleship journey is joining a group like these. That's what I believe. So join a group. Do we have, there's some, okay, there's some uh, details. I hope you can see that. Just some contacts if you think, okay, I'm going to get in one of those groups. I'm going to make that, that step and that's who you can call. Let me just bring us back to our main scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25, which Alyssa read to us at the beginning. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So did you see some of the applications in there? I mean, this is, there's sort of a sandwich effect happening here. On the, on the back end, you have the, or I mean, I'm sorry, on the front end, on the top of the, uh, the very beginning, it's talking about what Christ has done for us. Through his perfect live, life lived on our behalf, his sacrificial death, to take on himself the punishment that our sins deserved. What he's done for us. It's talking about what he's done for us and how that changes things for us. And now, now that we have confidence to come into the presence of God. Then on the back end, it's talking about not Jesus' first coming, but his second coming. It's talking about things that we do all the more as the day approaches. So it's sandwiched in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus 
you have some, some things to do, some applications. And um, many of them start with this phrase, let us, let us, let us. The applications are let us, let us, let us, not let me. Following Jesus works a lot better as a family or as a team. It's not as good as an individual sport. Because God didn't design us or his plan for the church in that way. He planned for us to be a body, to be every supporting ligament playing their role. Because you think about the other, let's just list them. You think about drawing near to God, which is mentioned in there. These are all the sort of application commands. Drawing near to God, holding on to the hope you profess, considering how to spur one another on to love and good deeds, and encouraging each other. All of those things either won't happen easily or won't happen at all if you give up meeting with each other as some are in the habit of doing. That's a really key phrase. You know, it's funny. Most of my life I've heard that don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing as talking primarily about the big gathering. And I totally think it applies to that. But I've rarely heard people use that to talk about coming together to practice the one another's, that love, that encouragement, that humility, that service, that walking with each other, that empowering one another. Usually it's talked about, you know, come to church on Sunday morning. But I think it's even more uh, potently applied when we talk about how we come together in small ways and go deeper in relationship. So, let me is not what the passage is saying. It's saying, let us. All, all being all alone won't cut it, but we need a lay alone, right? One another. Here's the second thing I, I noticed when I looked at this. Some of you have told me in the last number of months, that you see the day approaching. You see the day approaching. Because you see shifts in the world that look remarkably similar to what is described in Revelation or the book of Daniel or Jesus' teaching in the gospel or some of the the lines in Thessalonians. In fact, I was at Jiffy Loop the other day and waiting in line for my oil change. And this person beside me in their car, someone I know pretty well, and they're not from this church, but they're, I think they're believers. And we struck up a conversation, and all that they talked about was, I see all these things coming together. It seems like the day is approaching, and maybe things have sped up a little bit. And I can see these forces and these dynamics and all these things. And, you know, they made a really compelling case. In fact, I didn't have anything to disagree with them about and what they were saying. I said, I think you're making a great case. And I see those things too. I see those forces. I see those powers. I see people conspiring in certain ways. I see some of those things too. So what should we do? What should you prioritize if you see the day approaching? What should you do all the more as you see the day approaching? Should you build a bunker? Should you hoard toilet paper? Should you add to your gun collection? 
Should you try to win the next election? Should you tell other Christians that they should be more scared than they are? Should you try to stop the day from approaching? See, the day that's approaching is Jesus coming again. Now, the Bible tells us that before that day comes, there's going to be some birth pains. There's going to be some some events that aren't things you would look forward to. So even as Christians, it's very interesting. When when persecution breaks out throughout the history of the Christian church, then they begin to pray for the second. They're already experiencing pain and suffering and persecution. Then they pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come again. It's when we've experienced a cushy go of it that we say, not yet, Jesus. I want to get married. I want to graduate. I want to start my career. I want to have kids. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to. I haven't been to Tahiti yet. Oh, Lord, don't come quickly. But the Christians are all the, but our, well, our experience has been the exception, not the norm. The norm has been, it's been very costly to follow Jesus. And I think all of us recognize that there is some cost to following Jesus, but it's been very costly in most contexts throughout Christian history. And so when things got very hard, like it was in the book of Hebrews, when the persecution was raging against the Christian church, it was more normal for people to say, come quickly. Jesus is hard to persevere. Jesus, this is very difficult. And so they weren't trying to delay the end. They were trying to, Lord, we're looking forward to the end. We're looking forward to what you're going to bring. So this passage just gives us some basic things. Hold on to the hope you profess. Why? Because he's faithful. And in a storm, it's smart to hold on to something that cannot be shaken. So hold on to the hope you profess. Hopefully it's not just a hope you profess. Hopefully it's a real hope. A real living hope. I'm not saying that the hope isn't real. I'm just saying that hopefully you're really holding on to it. Not just giving it lip service. Not just professing it. But that you actually say, this is my rock. This is my anchor. And I know there will always be siren songs from other things saying, make me your anchor. Make me your anchor. Make me... No. They're all shakable things, except for the promise of God, that he's got us, that none can snatch us out of his hand, and that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, then we're going to join him someday. So hold on to the hope you profess, and then consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. This means we got to dream and scheme how we might love deeply and do loads of good for others, especially when hostility is on the rise. This is our time. When people are biting and devouring each other, like that one scripture says, and we're the people who are commanded not to do that, We should be excelling in love and good deeds. And we should be talking with each other on how to do that. That should be a great delight of ours to say, how can we love better? How can we love more deeply? How can we take that next step in love that we've been sort of self-protection about, but how can we just really risk ourselves in love? And how can we explode in good deeds? 
How can we lavish good deeds on those within the church and those without? How can we speak well of others? How can we honor others? How can we just love other people? Especially people who aren't getting a lot of love in this time. And so the people who are really difficult to love. Consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then it says, do not give up meeting with each other. Wow, especially when writing each other off is easy. Especially when divisions are multiplying. Do not give up meeting with each other. Prioritize this small togetherness and the big togetherness. Prioritize it. Say, that's so important. I'm going to be with the people of God. I'm going to get together with the people of God. And I'm going to bring something to give. And I'm going to be ready to receive. It's going to be give and receive. It's going to, I'm going to make sure that I do that. Don't give up meeting with each other. And then it says encourage each other. I tell you, two things I think are making cowards of us all. Fatigue, because we're tired. And fear, because we don't know what's coming. So when fatigue and fear are making cowards of us all, it's time to speak encouragement. And what does encouragement mean? It's to give people courage and courage. Make them courageous. Speak boldly the truth of who God is and who we are in relationship to God into each other's lives so that courage will rise in us. You see the day approaching? Encourage each other. Don't dwell on the fear. Don't dwell on the threat. Don't dwell on the conspiracies. Don't dwell on those things. Dwell on who God is and because of who God is, who I am in light of him. And then finally, you think I missed this one because it's at the beginning. Draw near to God. (laughs) Draw near to God. I love the, I think it's in James, the promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's not like you draw near to God and he's indifferent that you're in his presence. I think of the prodigal son story of here's a guy with a whole, he's walking home, rehearsing his excuses and dad sees him from a distance and runs. Wraps him up and calls him a son. Even though he was going to settle for being a servant. Gives him way more than he deserved. Just lavishes his affection on him. Oh man, if that's what God's going to do, draw near to him. Draw near to him. Some of us, we avoid God because we have such a religious approach to God. Ah, I can't go near God because I really blew it and so I've got to sort of punish myself for a while before I earn my way back into God. No, as soon as you sin, you know one of the signs that you're getting the gospel is, is how fast you turn to God after you fail. If it's months and it turns into weeks, you're growing. If it's weeks and it turns into days, you're growing. If it's days and it turns into hours, you're growing. If it's hours and it turns into minutes, you're growing. If it's almost instantaneous that you say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. You're growing. Because that's the gospel. Not that you, religion is just that you, you please God because you did the system. The gospel is, there's nothing you could do to make yourself right to God. So Jesus did everything that was needing to be done. And you just, in faith, trust him. Put your whole, throw your whole life's trust on him. Just believe in what he has done and live the rest of your life in gratitude response to him. 
Move out of guilt and into gratitude. Start praising him. Start thanking him. If you look at yourself, you'll be discouraged. But if you look at him, you'll get encouraged because what he's done for you is incredible. To draw near to God. You were created for a relationship with him. You were created for a relationship where you are fully known and fully loved. That's why the greatest command in the Bible is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It's in a love relationship with God that we discover, to our surprise, that we were already loved, deeply loved, so much more than we could ever imagine. I think it's a Tim Keller quote where he basically just says, we are more sinful. and we are, The two revelations we have through the gospel is that we're more sinful and flawed than we ever knew. And that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could have ever dreamed. So draw near to God. The one who has the authority, we learn this in this passage and throughout the book of Hebrews this summer, great teaching from the team who did the summer passages in Hebrews. We learn through this summer that the one who has the authority to judge us, the one who is our judge, through what Jesus done on the cross, becomes our defender. The one who is our judge becomes our advocate. The one whose standard is perfection meets that standard for us. The one whose holy presence should bring us to our knees, the one whose holy presence should bring us to our knees in the fear of rejection. He's the one who opens the way for us to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. So draw near to God. Draw near to God. And when you draw near to God, you're going to find that he's going to then redirect you in a neat way to imitate the relationship you have with him in all your other relationships. So he shows you grace. He shows you mercy. He pours out. He forgives your sin. And then he says, go and do likewise. You were created to imitate the relationship you have with God and how you relate to others. That's part of being a disciple of Christ. Being, being known more and more and being loved more and more is what we experience in God. And then when we get to know other people, we find out their faults and their failings. And God says, be like me. How was I with you? How patient was I with you? How loving was I with you? How forgiving was I with you? Go and do likewise. And so here's relationships where we're like, well, that person's really, I don't really like that. About I'm, but God, in his mercy, forgave all my sin. And instead of saying, now you can serve at the fringes of my kingdom, he said, you're a son. You're a child. If he gave me the right to be a child of God, then I've got to see people with new eyes and believe that God wants to give them that right to be the child of God. And all their sin, he wants to forgive. And so now I'm going to love deeply and extend grace and love my neighbor as I've been loved by God. Love my neighbor as myself. Hmm. 
We're going to do, we're going to take communion together at this time. Let me read you the, the, those first two verses of Hebrews for, for our communion time. Just read these two, first couple of verses. Focusing on what God has done for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, which is Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I invite you to stand with me this morning. I was reading this passage I'd never I'd never fully seen before the analogy of Jesus' body being like the curtain of the temple. And the story of the account of, of Jesus' crucifixion is that after he, he dies, after it is finished, something happens a ways away in the temple. The curtain that separated man from God, the curtain that was a very thick curtain and you couldn't, no one could rip it by hand. No, no strong man could ever rip it. And it was super high and super thick. And there's the curtain that said, basically, God wants to be close to you. That's what the, the temple always said. God wants proximity with people, but there's a problem, and that's our sin. And that temple, that curtain was always saying that. You can't come in here. You can't come right into the holy presence of God because of your sin. But when Jesus died... When Jesus died, that curtain was ripped from the top where no one could reach to the bottom. And this scripture is telling us that curtain, that curtain is just a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. His suffering, his death, his his bleeding and dying on our behalf opened up the way to relationship with God. That God always wanted for us. And that we in our sin had made it impossible for us to earn or deserve. But God in his mercy looked down on sinful humanity who's gone its own way and rebelled against God and said, I am going to make a way. And Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And three days later, he rose again. That's what made the way. So when we come together to church, we don't boast in what we've done. My goodness, we've got nothing that could earn us sonship with God. To be a child of God, we've got nothing. 
on our own. But Jesus did everything. He did everything. So I'm going to invite you this morning to take the symbol of his body, this this wafer, the symbol of his body, broken for us, so the way into relationship for eternity with God is open to all humanity, to those who believe on his name, to those who receive him, to those who believe on his name, they can become children of God. And that's what we celebrate here this morning. So let's take this in thanksgiving and gratefulness to what Jesus has done through his broken body. Lord, we thank you for your blood that cleanses us from all sin. I thank you that the body, your body broken for us opens the way, but your blood takes everything away that we've ever done and has the power to not just cleanse our track record, but to deliver us from the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master, and he's one that doesn't enslave. And so we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we remember what he did for us in the shedding of his blood. Let's take this together. Amen. We have communion with our Lord, and we have communion with each other. And God's going to do some amazing things in our lives as we support each other as disciples of Christ going forward. I'm going to turn things over to the worship team. I want to say one quick thing. Tonight's prayer summit, so praying with each other, we're going to do that together. This is seven times of the year we come together in a bigger context I know there's prayer meetings throughout the whole church, but this is a special prayer meeting where we come together and we pray as a church. And so it's 6.30 tonight, so I really invite you to come on out and just pray with each other. But before before we end, we really need to respond in gratitude to the Lord for what he's done. So let's, uh, let's worship him together.